Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, it's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, our interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you is the fun part, but there is a lot of sweat that come with the relentless hours of post-production and editing we do each week to bring our podcast to life. I have to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, Podigy. We all wear many hats, and I think most of you know that I am no exception, hosting the podcast, running a nonprofit, and working a full-time job. But my heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've made the decision to team up with Podigy. If you have a podcast or thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with and are offering our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Podigy part of my support team. In this episode, we're going to talk about toxicity. Sure, we're familiar with returning from vacation and needing to, quote unquote, detox. Maybe it's a week of smoothies and preparing healthy meals or sweating it out at the gym to release toxins. When you're diagnosed with cancer, we also talk about toxicity. This is typically within the context of chemotherapy or radiation, where the benefits of treatment outweigh the risks. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the financial burden of a breast cancer diagnosis. It's the elephant in the room, right? We have amazing doctors who talk to us about treatment options, surgery options, what's taking place in the most recent and cutting edge studies, as well as the outcomes of our prognosis. But he was talking to us about the cost of a cancer diagnosis. While we know that the cost of therapies and treatment is outrageously high, But what about the unintended costs associated with your diagnosis? Are you financially prepared to take time off of work to make it to weekly chemo infusions? Or pay for parking the next day when you need to return for the Nulasta shot? What about finding childcare so you can attend your follow-up appointments? These additional costs can sneak up on you and really become a hardship. That is to ask, are we financially toxic? Are we living with financial toxicity? To help shed light on this topic, we speak with Dr. Ryan Nipp, who studied this very topic. Dr. Nipp is a gastrointestinal oncologist and health service researcher at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. He completed his medicine residency at Duke University and oncology fellowship at Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center. Dr. Nipp's research focuses on optimizing the care delivered to patients with cancer. Specifically, his research platform consists of studies interfacing between palliative care, geriatric oncology, and health services research. His goal is to improve the quality of life and the care for his patients with cancer and their families. He is interested in developing models of healthcare delivery to improve patients' quality of life, address their symptom burden, and promote patient-centered decision-making. Welcome to the conversation. (laughs) 
My name is Laura Carfang. I'm the founder and executive director of survivingbreastcancer.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit dedicating to support those who have been diagnosed with cancer, caregivers, survivors, thrivers, like the whole gamut. And as part of that, we have launched our Breast Cancer Conversations podcast, where we kind of go out in the community and talk to those who have been diagnosed with breast cancer, but then also the experts. So whether they're oncologists, radiologists, nutritionists, yogi gurus who help us de-stress, like pretty much everybody that falls under that larger gamut of the cancer conversations. So we're really thrilled and honored to have you, Dr. Ryan Nip, here on our podcast today. And you don't come necessarily from the breast cancer realm, but I believe that a lot of your experience with regards to patient experience, and then also, I believe, the financial burdens that play a role in a cancer diagnosis is really like at the soul of what we want to talk about today. But I would love to turn things over to you to give you an opportunity to formally introduce yourself, and we'll get things started. I'm Ryan Nip. I'm an oncologist at Mass General Cancer Center. I have done some quite a bit of research over the past several years on financial toxicity related to cancer, which when you think of financial toxicity, you think of the patient experience and how they feel related to out-of-pocket expenses and the cost of care. And so I had started doing that during my residency training. And actually, my first project was focused on a cohort that was the vast majority were patients with breast cancer. And so that's where I kind of started my my passion for this topic. And so I will always be grateful for that population where we first kind of described the idea of what financial toxicity is and the financial burden that patients experience while they're going through their treatment. And then we've expanded and done quite a few other studies looking at, you know, broader cancer populations. But it was really that first study, which was 90% patients with breast cancer. Wow. Excellent. So it's interesting because a lot of times when we think about like toxicity, my mind immediately goes to radiation, toxicity, chemicals, chemotherapy, all of the toxicity that we're putting into our bodies and the long-term side effects of those. And just this past week when we were down at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, I was amazed to see all these poster sessions and discussions specifically about the financial toxicity. So can you explain like the definition of what financial toxicity is? So We, when we kind of, I think there's been actually quite a bit of research looking at the financial burden that patients experience while they're going through treatment. And that's been going on for many years. And I think it was 2010 around there where really the the term financial toxicity was coined. And it's really the same research, the same term, the same concept that we were talking about for years before that, but it finally had this name that really was able, people were able to attach to and hold on to, which is financial toxicity which I think there was there was a nice New England Journal paper about this years ago now, where it specifically describes a patient with colon cancer who's about to get a targeted agent that can sometimes cause high blood pressure or sometimes can cause bleeding issues. But the point of the paper was we spend a lot of time as oncologists talking about the potential physical side effects and other side effects that chemotherapy or targeted agents come along with. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about the financial side effects that come along with cancer, which can be the out-of-pocket costs, the paying for parking, the co-pays related to the medications that you're getting, and then specifically time away from work as well, or just lost work or disability while people are going through treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's just this whole other kind of concept that patients and caregivers knew about for many, many years. But I think the the research field and the field of oncology has really grabbed onto and kind of come to understand better. When we use that nomenclature of financial toxicity, it's kind of 
it it's it resonates with the field in a way that financial burden or economic hardship hadn't quite yet. Sure. And so it's it's really become it's taken off and gotten a lot more attention for this idea. Excellent. And how recent would you say that that started to come to the forefront? Probably around 2010, maybe a, a little earlier okay. than that. Just it's really when that term was coined. Um, it, it, actually, I was I was at Duke at the time and my mentor was Yusuf Safar. And so Yusuf Safar and Amy Abernathy were kind of the fathers or the, the people who wrote that first paper where they mentioned the term financial toxicity and described it. And that's mm-hmm. where I had met with him. And we were using that database that he had used to describe the term. And that really just kicked off this, you know, groundswell of more and more research focused on this same topic that a lot of people had been working on for years, but really had something that a name to identify with. Yeah. And that's what I love. I was reading some of these papers that had been published because it backs up what we know as survivors that, yes, there's a huge financial commitment and how people can go through their savings and retirements within two years. Yeah. And we know this is happening, but without that you know, evidence-based and empirical research to say, no, this financial toxicity is actually one of those longer-term side effects, right. just like heart disease or right. diabetes. Right. And that's the other thing that I still think we need a little more research to show this. I have trouble when people say this, but I understand where it's coming from. I think there is a little bit of data to support the fact that often patients, the financial concerns, they're more worried about the financial impact than they are sometimes the physical or psychological concerns related to cancer. And that's where, I, again, it just gives that a face to the name of like, this is really important to patients and caregivers. Why are we not paying more attention to this? And really, when you back it up with data and just show how highly prevalent and problematic it is, that's really right. where it's gotten more attention. Yeah, you brought up some great points, too, just when you have to come in for yeah. weekly treatments or something like radiation when you're there Monday through Friday every day for a couple of weeks or weekly, monthly chemo appointments, yeah. follow-up appointments. People are t- needing to take time away from their jobs or finding additional child care, plus the transportation getting to and mm-hmm. from. So these are all things that kind of add up over time. Mm-hmm. And you know, unfortunately, not everyone's employer as as, as flexible true. and you know, depending on people's benefits and health insurance, you know, there's a huge gamut there that I think can really affect that that quality of life for the patient. And that's the, uh, like a little bit of like a good point about like it's not not everyone's the same either. It depends kind of we, we've studied this too, like where you're at in life, like older versus younger, what mm. job you have could what type of cancer and what type of cancer treatment, whether or not how often are you coming into the cancer center? Is it a pill you could be doing at home? What are the mm. side effects? Could you still do a little bit of work? Yes or no. And how good was your insurance coming into this? Were you prepared? Right. There, there's just so many variables that impact how the financial toxicity affects that specific person. That when you're meeting a person, which I, that's something I think we should talk a lot about too, is we've gotten good at describing the problem, which needed to be done over the past 10 years. And I think mm. the field is now moving into what can we do about it? We have to address this issue. And that, as with many things, harder than we expected. It's easier sure. said than done. So I think that's the next step as far as all of us in the field of we have described it, but we now have to figure out a way to address it. Yeah. So that's kind of like the new phase, the right. next phase Hopefully of where we're the at. Next phase. <laughs> I think a lot of us that are excited about this and do research about this, it, it's hard. Like I think we've, we've all got ideas. And now it's there's there's multiple steps. You have to first come up with good idea that actually is good idea. Convince someone who's willing to fund that research to fund that idea, and then conduct it in a rigorous way. Where if you find a positive or negative finding, that the field believes it. Meaning that even if you find it negative, like if something doesn't work, was it done in a 
rigorous enough fashion that no one else needs to try it again because you've proven that it doesn't work mm. versus these are hard studies to do. And so I, I think it's actually, if you go further upstream, just the ideas of what what's out there to even potentially help, there's a dearth of ideas. So there's a lot, there's a lot of room for improvement, but how low hanging fruit, like what can we actually on the, on the ground be, I, be doing mm-hmm. is, is hard and trying to figure out how to do it. About 20 years ago, I've had, I've had two corporate careers and about uh, 20 years ago, we came up with the, the novel idea of everyone who wanted to volunteer pitch in yeah. vacation day. Yeah. And then that spread like wildfire. Yeah. It was a good idea. It was a tipping point. And yeah. that's what you need to do. You need to achieve that tipping point yes. throughout industry so that yeah. they, ha- they have an appreciation for really helping out the, yeah. uh, the, the, the patients. It's a great point. So getting into that a little bit, we've done some work at MGH, at Mass General, where we had done for patients enrolled on clinical trials, we identified, or at least our theory was that patients who go on to cancer clinical trials, that's a particularly vulnerable population to financial issues because they are taking off more time to come to the cancer center. They're often traveling from farther distances because they had to come to Boston because this was the only place that the trial was open. And so we focused on that population, seeing could we address their financial issues? And we had worked with a nonprofit company where they were able to have funding to provide patients with reimbursement for the travel and lodging associated with clinical trial mm-hmm. enrollment. And what we have found with multiple publications now is that it it is moving the needle. It is helping address patients' financial concerns. The problem is it wasn't a gangbuster. It wasn't a huge change because we were learning that there's other things. It's more than just travel and lodging. So it's going to have to be a little bit more than that. That alone did some. So that's great. And then it's expensive. It's, you know, you're, you're giving, you're refunding money back to people that they've been paying and people are traveling from long distances and sure. it, it adds up fast. So that kind of was the next kind of thought in our mind was, could we engage with industry to find a way that it incentivizes, it's a win-win by them helping patients with the travel and lodging costs. Not only does it help the patients and helps their quality of life and helps them stay on trial, but it helps patients to enroll and stay on their clinical trial in a way that the pharmaceutical company or the industry would, that's what they're, I, that's what you want. You want to actually be able to enroll to your study, see it out and prove that if drug A or drug B works, it works. And we were able to enroll that trial and potentially faster. So you're able to complete the trials in a more rapid fashion. So okay. there is a lot of, we have, we were very excited about that. It's just, I feel like that's, that's the future and we do need to test it for further, but I think it is, coming up with novel ideas to engage with funders who someone who has the means to help with these issues. And another thing that I'm hearing about, it's in some ways, it's like if you take a step back and look at the forest through the trees, it's heartbreaking that we even have to talk about things like this. So to your point about like taking vacation days off and donating back and and having a pot for patients, there is, I've heard of this, I haven't studied this and I don't know that anyone is, but you just hear instances of there's those like funding pages where like people say I have cancer and I am bankrupt. And so there's these, there's this groundswell of GoFundMe pages where you can actually, you know, at least help person by person. So if if the person has the wherewithal and the technological savviness and the loved ones who are willing to do that, I've heard of that being done, Mm -hmm. but it's number one, heartbreaking that even has to happen. And number two, is that truly a feasible thing that we should be doing for all patients with cancer? Maybe, maybe not, but there's just, there's novel ideas like that. Could there be an app that it puts you in touch with whatever resources, whether or not there's a lot or a little, 
but you at least get a little bit of a better idea of what might be out there mm-hmm. when you're going through this. I, that There's some ideas. People are testing some of these, but it, I think there's there's a lot more room for improvement and we we need some more ideas people to come along yeah. and help us figure out is the, how can we address this. We get requests at uh, survivingbreastcancer.org on almost a weekly basis for funding. And I've got a, I've got a whole yeah. database of uh, potential funders for uh, uh, breast cancer patients. Typically, that's what comes to us. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of appreciation, but you're right to have that kind of a database available right. through an app so that we can reach out to the masses. Yeah. A lot of people don't need, a lot of people have plenty of insurance. A lot of people have great jobs. And from that perspective, I think the app is a really good idea. I mean, that's what everyone is turning to anyways. And it would make perfect sense to get a, a, some kind of a, a of an, an enormous anti-toxicity database right. going so that we could structure a bit of a, a medical bailout for these patients and uh, allow them to, to resolve those financial issues and mm-hmm. get through the medical issues. And it, that behooves big pharma, that right. behooves the hospital chains, that behooves right. virtually everybody because we're, we're creating conditions where if you take away that particular issue, burden, yeah. it's a real burden. And if you take that away, they can really focus yes. on their cancer and not on their piggy banks. Yeah. And that's the other thing we don't really know about. Again, it's this un it's like the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how much people are suffering about this. There's actually been quite a bit of research about patients are not always bringing this up in their oncology clinic visits for various reasons. One of the top reasons, which is very valid, is that they don't know how much we can do about it. And that's there's been studies on the oncology side of why don't we bring it up with our patients? And yet again, part of the issue is we don't know even if we open that can of worms what we might be able to do to help. And so there's is both sides. And that's something that we've I've talked about in the past is that at the very least, could there be education around the idea of, sure, maybe there's not a lot that we could do, but there are some things. And please bring it up to me in clinic because we could at least talk about, mm-hmm. say, we're making you come in every week. Maybe we could do a phone call for some of these things that, you know, the future with telemedicine. Could we could that take some of the burden from people? Maybe you're getting a nausea medicine that your insurance doesn't cover as well as a different nausea medicine. So could we try some other things? There are at many cancer centers, fantastic social work and fantastic financial counselors and even navigators that could be employed if we just knew that people were having issues. Mm-hmm. And that's the another thing that comes up in our work is who should be the one? Should should we really rely on the patients? Should they really should it have to reach that boiling point where they're the ones bringing it up, or should the clinician bring it up, or should this be something in the waiting room that we're having people fill out a questionnaire? Versus the other thing that I wonder about is, do patients even know yet? Because bills come in so much further down the line. Do you even know what's about to come? And by having patients early on meet with a financial counselor or someone who could help coach them through just that unknown. I think that's another thing that I've thought about is, is a lot of this burden related to the uncertainty around, I'm coming to the hospital a lot. So when are my copays and when are my bills going to start running, rolling in and just letting people know you might want to start preparing for each visits this much. And so getting ready down the line, which again, so tragic and sad that people are having to deal with that while they're going through one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing in their life is tragic. 
Absolutely. I think you bring up a lot of great points. I love the idea of having a questionnaire that someone fills out because even just talking in the cancer community and also taking, you know, different diverse backgrounds and ethnicity, mm -hmm. people might not talk about it. It's yes. not something that they talk right. about, so not they would polite. not bring it up to you. Mm -hmm. But if you give them a form, literally a checkbox, right? Like not open-ended, but like, how am I feeling today? Are you still employed today? How often yeah. are you working? Like, you know, just asking the questions, you'll be surprised how many people will check the boxes mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. it's just them in the sheet of paper. Right. Because when doctors are like, oh, how are you feeling today? Is there fatigue? Is this, they'll ask you the laundry list. And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm right. fine. But you gotta get those pointed questions across. Mm -hmm. So so, so you, have, you have published a paper on this. Subject. Yeah. Could we take that paper and Absolutely. publish it on our website and yeah. solicit contributions, not, not financial, but uh, yeah. commentary right. from our, uh, our extensive community, because we would like to, we'd like to serve as that medium yeah. to try to get some more data yes. for you. And, and to answer your question, typically patients aren't good self-advocates. They just right. And that's where we have to, and that's again, that's on our end. We need to advocate mm -hmm. and empower patients to have that space. And that's where, mm -hmm. is it that an, an anonymity of anonymity of being able to do it on a piece of paper or on a tablet in the waiting room yeah. versus a, I, I still wonder if, if people don't even know yet. And by the time it does hit them, is it too late? And so could we find some other triggers like address, employment, insurance type, but we know you may be at higher risk. So we're going right. to bring this up specifically or yeah, having like everyone. Intervention, like proactive. Proactively identifying. Yeah. And that's the other piece of feedback too that I've heard from our community, which is what I love about this job because you know we're hearing it from both ends, and then we can have very fruitful conversations. Mm -hmm. As you know, again, it's just anecdotal, not like grounded in any science or scientific yeah. research. Yeah. But what we're hearing too is even if it's on a table in your oncology center, they're not going to pick it up. They see the doctor yeah. as like God, pretty much, right? Like so, when he gives this to me, this makes or she gives this to me then I'm taking this and we'll follow up on it. It's not the nurse. It's not the, you know, RN or somebody like that, but I follow doctor's orders. The doctor said I should do this. Great. I will not do that. And you know, I think that's part of like the culture and the education that we're just living in right now. Well, the other thing that we, I do a lot of survey research where we're asking people about their symptoms and quality of life. And the one thing that I also know about by doing a lot of survey research is if you, you can give people all sorts of surveys and they'll do it a few times, but if there's no feedback that, that someone's paying attention on the back end, then they quickly, people will quickly lose interest in continuing to fill out your surveys. And so that's the other, it goes back to that education piece of, if we're going to be asking about this, we're going to need to equip the clinicians or at least give them the empowerment to refer to somebody who has this knowledge so that you can help whenever you yes. do see, because that's the, the hardest thing is when you feel helpless to a issue that your patient who you learn to love is having trouble and you can't help address that, that's tough. Yeah, right. And that also begs the question that you're just mentioning. It's hard to even ask the question because we don't have the resources to be able to provide. So speaking of the financial toxicity too, I'm just thinking some of the obvious ones that you just mentioned was you know taking time off from work, the parking, the travel costs, the lodging costs. Has it ever come up in terms of like food costs or being able to like be home and provide meals for the families or other costs like daycare costs or things that we haven't considered that would be very helpful in supporting those life decisions? Or go exercising and having the time to do that. So no matter what you're recommending, are people able to do it? Because eating right and exercising well can be expensive and time consuming and you're spending your time on other things and you need to be working when you're not at the cancer center. Yeah. But to your question, 
No, there's not. That's actually some another issue in the field a little bit is that we have our questions that we use. And if you look into this field, you'll see it's the same 20 questions mm -hmm. that we ask people a lot of about savings, about have you, you know, stopped going on vacation? Have you worked more? Have you had your family work more? Have you not taken prescribed medications as a result of costs? Have you felt worried about costs? Have you experienced financial burden? There's a lot of very yeah. similar questions across studies, but we don't, I've never, I mean, I'm probably not thinking of some, but I haven't seen questions specifically about like childcare or being able to provide food. I mean, you hear about food, like being able to afford food, but not specific like healthy food, things like that. And then the other thing I was going to say is that there, a lot of the studies, there's a specific measure that's been validated to assess for financial burden. It's called the cost measure. It's something about financial toxicity is within that measure. And it's 11 item measure and it's been validated and really well studied. But if you read the questions, it doesn't necessarily fit perfectly with a more financially strapped population. So it's asking questions about savings and about you know, working more or less, but what if no one, if they don't have savings to begin with, that is the question even pertinent to that right. population. So that's where we, there, there is some work I know of being done to develop more specific questions that may get and be more sensitive to a population that's, that has a lower income to begin with. It's more at risk right. so that we, and that the other thing I wonder about is a lot of the studies to date have shown that younger patients are much, have much higher financial burden and I wonder if we're asking the right questions for the older population, because I'm sure they're not experiencing no financial burden, but a lot of our questions are, are you having to take out savings? Are you having to change your lifestyle? Things like that. And maybe older adults are doing okay on those questions, but they're on a, for most patients who are retired, if they're over 65, they're on a fixed income. And are they experiencing other stressors that we're just not asking about? Mm -hmm. Or are they doing okay? Because most older adults have Medicare and and insurance coverage. So that's still yeah. an area that needs to be studied as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was reading in one of the other articles too, when, with your reference to um, men and women under 40, mm -hmm. you know, these young adults with cancer, um, they may not be married yet. They may not have families yet. Established career, right. Exactly. And so when you're going through a cancer diagnosis, you are for however long in treatment and not working on that career piece. And then- Paused everything, yeah. Exactly. And then even I'm experiencing it myself going back, like your hair is back, you're looking normal, you have energy and it lingers in the back of your mind that you have a diagnosis, but you're expected to work and you're managing the fatigue and the tiredness. And then you're just like, what's the next step? Like, do I still want that, you know, high paying corporate ladder that I was working towards? And then you're right, new perspective. Like, does that even matter anymore? I'm just happy to be alive, right? Like, it's very challenging. And I think especially in the breast cancer community, I talk to a lot of young women who are making very challenging decisions around fertility, harvesting their eggs or finding alternative ways to uh, be able to bear a child. And there's a financial cost with all of that. So you're right. There's, you know, it's not just like the medication and the drugs, but it's all of the elements on the sidelines and it doesn't seem like it, you know when you think about it it all not not much of it adds up in the other direction there it's all kind of adding up towards adding to the financial burden or the economic hardship or the financial side effects that people are going through like there's not a lot out there that's not combined on top of that i mean you're like you kind of hinted at you have other symptoms that are 
like even if you were able to work you're not feeling great so um, how right. effective can you be and that that's tough and we've done some qualitative work where i've heard repeatedly that there's also this guilt of i'm going through this and others are able to work why can't i but i just can't seem to feel good enough is, is there something wrong with me and mm -hmm. it's it's tough because it's, it's expectations too like not everyone's gonna have the same out you know side effects yeah. and ability to work throughout this I was looking at um, a neat poster session in San Antonio that was looking at the, I totally mispronounced the technical name for it, but ultimately what chemo brain is, mm -hmm. like the neurological like studies and images of the brain and showing over time, like your baseline, then you have treatment six years or six months and 12 months out. And that there's actually like cognitive dissonance there and that people aren't performing to the level that they were. So I'm glad now that there's like studies to show that. But then, because I feel like we all kind of mentally knew that that was happening, but now that we have the science to back that up, okay, how does that work under ADA when we're talking to our employers about like the function that we can do? And I also hear with a lot of women also who are managing with the neuropathy, not being able to do like the typing or the receptionist work that they used to be able to do. So again, it's like these longer term effects that at least what I take at survivingbreastcancer.org is okay, this is like surviving breast cancer, right? It's no longer like active treatment has now ended. There's this whole like, you know, decades of life we have left to live that I'm personally not really prepped for. So I created an organization to help others as we navigate this. So that's the other thing. Another trade-off that we're making while we're going through treatment is these, these may have long-term side effects on cognition, neuropathy, mm -hmm. physical function, sexual function. And how much can we adjust that and while we're going through it in order to help mitigate some of those? And that's what we need to learn with yeah. financial issues as well as are there trade-offs in between that people might be willing to make to not have so much long-term mm -hmm. consequences. And it's, at least we're thinking about it. No, that's, I'm glad. I'm glad you're having the conversation. Uh, the next topic that I wanted to, uh, to hear from you was your, your composition on uh, palliative care and the, chronically ill or the yeah. those who've been diagnosed and when is the most opportune time yeah this is something where i sometimes struggle with I, my passions are geriatric oncology palliative care and financial burden and the the intersection of those doesn't always meet perfectly and then there's politics involved so when you talk about palliative care there actually is quite a bit of data that sometimes you can decrease costs, but that's controversial. And I, we've never really looked at financial burden in relation to palliative care, but you wonder if by having palliative care involved, you may be helping with the financial side effects in some way, whether it's helping people handle that psychological distress, handle the uncertainty, or just coming to grips with the fact that it's going through cancer and it's just another side effect that palliative care can help address. So as far as palliative care, it's that field, it, it's a good example of identifying an issue developing an intervention the intervention works amazingly and now the field needs to change and and people need to be getting palliative care more than they are and so where the data was as recently as 10 years ago was that we all knew as i say we I, mean, I was still in training at the time but there was something that palliative care is doing they are focused on patients comfort quality of life symptoms and when you're working with them, at least when I was in medical school and residency, there's just something different about those clinicians. It just seemed like they they got it. They they were truly helping patients. So then there was data first in 2009 in a JAMA paper, and then in 2010 in a New England Journal article from my mentor here, which is Jennifer Timmel, where we were able to show, or she was able to show, 
with earlier involvement of palliative care. And by early, they defined it as within two months, within eight weeks of their di- of a patient's diagnosis with advanced lung cancer was that population. Getting palliative care involved helped, helped with patients' quality of life as well as their depression. And then another side effect of palliative care within that study, which is fascinating to understand to kind of unpack like why did that happen was that the patients who got early palliative care in that study had longer survival. And so in some ways it, it's it's great for the field because we were able to show, you know, by getting better quality of life and symptom control, we're not shortening life. That's amazing. And I say we, the palliative care clinicians. And whether or not we're actually prolonging life and how has never truly been understood, but Hey, we'll take it. That's fantastic that we're that people are living longer and living better with palliative care. That's like the gold standard for an intervention. If you're able to help people live better and live longer, that's amazing. And so that's where the field of palliative care was able to then we at least I've heard people in the field call that the big bang where that was truly a moment where the field came together and said, "Wow, we now have the highest level of evidence that early palliative care works. We now need to start implementing this." And so now the whole implementation phase is still ongoing, which is we know that there's an intervention out there that works, which as we were just talking about with financial issues, we need to first figure out an intervention that works. But then the next step is how can we get that to everyone? So I would argue that all people with advanced cancer would benefit from palliative care. I I mean, essentially, it's one of those things where almost all people in general would benefit from palliative care. These are just thoughtful, amazing clinicians. But there's a shortage of those clinicians in the world, and so it's a limited resource. And so then there's been this discussion of how do we identify the most high-risk patients or how do we identify a population that's the most needing of that intervention? And that's hard because it's how do you identify, like I said, I I think everyone would benefit from it, is when you identify a very high-risk population, well, then are you identifying a population that's so high-risk that palliative care, they need palliative care just like everyone does, but have we also, like, it, could we, did they need it earlier on? And so by that point, are the symptoms so refractory that we're really not able to do as much as we would have been able to do if we had been able to get in touch with them earlier on? And so that's that's what that field is kind of at, is grappling with the the limited workforce, but we know what they do works, which I think is cool. Like, that's where you can come up with these really novel ideas of can we do telemedicine palliative care? Can we do collaborative care models where we have nurse practitioners or technicians or care coordinators seeing the patients? And then there's a palliative care clinician in the background helping coach. Uh, there's a lot of cool ways to think about, can we just increase the workforce by increasing more nurses and nurse practitioners that are helping and able to and equipped to help with palliative care needs? And then the whole other part of palliative care is, does everyone need exactly what was given to the patients in the New England Journal paper, or could we ease off a little bit and do kind of higher level so that the palliative care clinicians that we have can move on more quickly and see more patients. So there's just a lot of cool things to be to be said about the palliative care field. That's exciting. It's very exciting. It's exciting news. I'm looking at some of the questions, Maddie, that you've thrown up on the board. Um, piggybacking off of what you were just mentioning about like the populations and the demographics. I think mm-hmm. Maddie, you're asking which populations or demographics get affected most by this yeah. financial toxicity. Yep. So we did, I did. That was my first paper when I was working with Yusuf Safar at Duke, where we looked at specifically in that cohort, which was majority of patients with breast cancer. So we couldn't necessarily look at differences across cancer types, but we could look at differences. What we did was we looked at differences across age, which is where we found that younger patients are, were reporting higher financial issues than older patients. We looked across insurance types, we looked across education, we looked across income, and we looked across 
the length of time they had been living with their cancer. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, it's been like five years now since that study, but I do think I remember seeing that it was patients with lower incomes were more at risk for experiencing financial issues. And what was interesting from that paper, I remember one of our take-home messages was the people that were more early in their diagnosis were at that point reporting higher financial issues, which is hypothesis generating. I don't. I think that needs to be replicated. But we had hypothesized perhaps it's that you're still facing that shock. And the people that have lived with their cancer for more than a year, we dichotomized it at a year. The people that had lived beyond a year were having less financial burden than those mm-hmm. that were within a year. And we wondered if it was just they were still kind of grappling with the whole diagnosis and just this sudden shock to their finances. And those that had gotten to a year had kind of figured out how to cope or had at least overcome that hurdle of that shock. Mm-hmm. So that that was that that's a great question about the populations at risk. Yeah. I just signed up for a whole bunch of doctor's appointments being the end of December because I know yes. that my deductible is going to, you know, reset in January and surprising or Smart. not surprisingly, I should say, I normally match it out by February. So it's fine. Which is another but, strategy actually, right? Yeah. If you if you're savvy, so you know to do that. So mm-hmm. that's just another strategy that people should take advantage of if they exactly. if they have that opportunity with their insurance. So one other thing is like this isn't just like a one-stop solution where like yeah. it was not just doing right. treatment of cancer. Again, like there are so many side effects that follow you after you've been cured and you need treatment for that as well. For example, eating healthy and like also coping with, you know, depression yeah. that, you know, follows you through after cancer as well. And, you know, paying for those sessions are also expensive and people kind of forget that. And I feel like how do how would you suggest that like people bring that topic forward when, you know, you are even when you leave your oncology team, I know you don't remember your oncology team, but like, you know, how would you bring that up? And like, how would you have that discussion? How would you encourage patients to have that discussion with the team? Yeah, I think, excellent question. If I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'll, I'll um, generalize of like, how do you have that? How do you, how would I recommend a patient bring up their financial concerns just in general? And I, again, I'm maybe I, I probably can't speak for everybody. I'm specifically passionate about financial burden, but I, I really value when patients bring it up. It's not often like one out of 20 ever mention it at all. And that's for me, it's again, like the tip of the iceberg. If they say anything about like they're having trouble with the bill or they got some unexpected bill, just the fact that they mention anything at all, that's kind of a grab onto that and mention it was, have you been having any other issues with finances? Like I'm, I'm pretty frank with my patients. I am, you know, I'm, I'm honest if, if it's not much I can do about it, just to let them know, like I'm glad they mention it. And, but, and, but that's the other thing is we can strategize, you know, it, is there a time of year where you've already kind of hit the limits with insurance? And if it makes more sense for us to reschedule, we can do that. Or are you like, be honest with me, you're not going to fill this medicine because there's, there's no way you can afford it versus tell me, do I need to do nine refills versus three? Does your insurance prefer that I do that? And would they, would there be less co-pays that way? Just strategizing ways to help cut back on some of the out-of-pocket expenses. And like I mentioned before, like, at least with a lot of cancer centers, if you have to drive into town, pay for parking, be away from work, could we spare you that by a, a phone call? And like, could there be other strategies? So just bringing up the idea and just bringing up, just being honest. And that's where I do feel like, I hope patients have an oncology team that they feel comfortable enough bringing up anything. There's so many kind of touchy subjects that I don't know that like patients, I hope they would feel comfortable enough with their team to bring up finances, sexual health, fear of recurrence. These are hot topics that clinicians, we're all talking about it and we may not have the answers, but we're comfortable. I, I say this about myself with people bringing it up at this point. And by the point, that's the thing I love about oncology. We really get to know our patients. And so by that point, 
you can be honest about what what you can and can't do, but at least you know that that's something that's it's kind of the elephant in the room. Like when you're prescribing nausea meds or right. hormone medicines for breast cancer, like are, is there a reason people may not be as adherent to medications, and is it related to cost? So at least it's out in the open, and you're not wondering. And you know, again, I think my brain is like churning because I'm so excited. I'm like, okay, all of a sudden, I feel like we should do like a clinic, like a workshop and, you know, show people like here are some strategies that they can implement right away. These are some questions and like, here's a worksheet that you should be asking all of your doctors. I actually got a bill. So after my diagnosis, I started to go for some therapy because I was dealing with the depression and anxiety and a traumatic health experience. And then I got a bill for that therapy session and was like, wow, this is going to increase my depression and anxiety (laughs) because I cannot pay for this. And I literally went to my doctor and said, this is what came to me in the mail. This is like half my rent. Yeah. I can't see you anymore. There's there's oftentimes when people bring up bill issues, I'm like, really? Are, so we talk with our social work and financial people to make sure that was accurate and make, first of all, make sure that was appropriate for them to get that bill. And then second, if it was, figuring out a way to avoid it in the future or... Yes. And I know it's hard practice to get into. Also, I feel like my attorney friends out there in the world are very organized. But, you know, you go in and, you know, you record the date, who you met with, what you got done. Because I was surprised, too, when I'm like scrutinizing over my bills, how expensive the equipment is, all this syringes, syringes, yeah, for like the shots or like the different biopsies tests and everything that we're getting. There's a bill for everything. And so just making sure I'm like, am I really being charged twice for this or they really prick me twice type of thing. So I think there's some small, like human error that can happen in terms of billing. Again, how sad and tragic that like, like that's the thing. You're very savvy, educated, and that you think you need to take notes on every single person you meet and everything that happens so that you could arbitrate at some point. That's just tragic. And I guess that's the other thing is that there are like novel care models coming around where you know, for every given visit or every given given diagnosis, there's a bundle, you know, it's like bundled payments where you, it's less about every specific syringe and shot and medicine. Right. And it's more about so that like whether that or not that helps or not right. with the finances or what the patient feels, I don't know yet, but mm-hmm. it's just sad that like you, you wonder about every little thing, or maybe there was somebody in the background that you didn't like the radiologist or the pathologist that you didn't even recognize that name exactly. shows up. <laughs> yep, exactly. So we're having the conversations, and I think that is the first step. It sounds like we have a lot of idea. idea. That's the other thing I would say, like you just brought up about like we need like a workshop to bring, like what's the lowest hanging fruit? I would encourage people if there is any issue at all, there are plenty of websites. If you just look up financial burden or financial toxicity associated with cancer, there's a lot a lot of how much, how helpful they are, I don't know. But there's a lot of websites out there where there are companies and organizations okay. interested in this and they are pretty well done and just looking into those like top 10 kind of hits that you find yeah there are like there's apps out there there are mm-hmm. companies out there there are there are people wanting to help and then the other side of that is that's broadly that's internationally nationally and then just within your own cancer center asking if you can meet with social work maybe you're not comfortable asking the question about finances but you could ask to meet with social work and social work can help with numerous things, but they can also put you in touch with the resources for financial issues. Cause every institution has their own financial 
resources, how good they are, probably the, the quality is probably variable across places, but that's one thing. And then there is the internet and it's mm -hmm. growing and they, there are some pretty good organizations and apps. Excellent. And again, to continue this relationship and partnership, if there's anything as you're thinking about like how survivingbreastcancer.org could provide, you know, $50 gift cards to the grocery stores, or, you know, if they participate in a trial, they'll be recipients of X, Y, and Z. And that's something that we can concretely go out and fundraise for knowing that it's having, you know, a direct impact on somebody. So. And it's just like, how how organizations that are raising money for research could could that be something where there's there's a kind of this movement to we need more patients at our research meetings every year we have an annual ASCO meeting you're talking about the San Antonio yeah. meeting is there a way where we can get more patient advocates and patients there and and at least getting rid of the finances related to that just so that we can have more of the patient voice at our conferences mm -hmm. like that's pretty low hanging fruit too yeah we heard that at um during our discussions with uh, McGee Women's Research Institute down in uh, Pittsburgh, and they said that the patient advocacy uh, commentary was so welcome and they were really adjusting on the fly. And And I, I see a, a real incentive in, in chatting with those clinicians down there. They can't get enough people into trials. And, and one of the reasons, of course, is always financial too, is fear and just apprehension. But but to, to, to incentivize them and, and let them know that there's economic feasibility associated with that. Not that we want to pay you, but if you have a hardship, we think that we can resolve some of those issues. Like with most breast cancer patients, they tend to be women. And some of these women are homemakers. And sometimes they don't really know their financial situations, you know, because they don't handle the finances. And so having that conversation with your oncology team can be extremely difficult when you don't know where the money's coming from, where it's going. And again, like, you know, like you mentioned, having a social worker talk to them, even then, like, what would I bring to my social worker? How would I explain my situation to like facilitate a proper outcome, I guess? So, so I'm probably spoiled. We're spoiled at Mass General. Our social workers are so lovely. They will meet you where you're at. So the social workers, at least here, would at the very least find you at your next visit, whether or not it's in your room or in the infusion center and just catch you wherever you are. And you can say, I don't even know where to begin. And then they can meet you where you're at. I would recommend at the next visit, just bring in your last pay stubs or your what was your income last year or what were your expenses over the past month just ha they can help prepare you so that you can be more equipped mm -hmm. and that's where like again if you don't bring it up don't even know and that's where i i think i'm more thinking on the research side of like is that something we could be doing proactively with research is having earlier on people meeting with a social worker and them helping coach people through the process just to so they are empowered to take ownership or at the very least, take away that uncertainty so that they're prepared. They know that this could be coming so that it's not a shock when it, things happen. This is a lot of great takeaways. Yeah. I think I really appreciate you doing like a deep dive on a sensitive topic yeah. like finance, mm -hmm. especially in the context of a cancer diagnosis. So too touchy, um, too touchy subject. It is. Yes. And I appreciate all of the research that you are proactively like putting out there so that way we can come and find interventions and ways to kind of tip the needle. Dr. Nitt, thank you so much for being on our podcast today and for teaching us about the added layer of toxicity when it comes to a breast cancer diagnosis. I look forward to continuing the conversation and tackling some of the low hanging fruit opportunities that can positively help the patient experience 
and alleviate some of this financial burden. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving. Thank you.